Are you struggling with purpose? Are you anxious about your future and the state of the world? Maybe you find it difficult to think long-term and instead are making decisions based on short-term goals, hacks, shortcuts, and gains. How's that working out for you? We live in a world where we are experiencing right now more than ever the consequences of short-term thinking. The wars, the climate, the economy, our health, and so on are being hit hard by the decisions we are making. Can we, can you, learn to think more long-term? Well, my guest today is futurist Ari Wallach, who is the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs and the author of one of the most important reads for me this year, Long Path, Becoming the Ancestors Our Future Needs. He says we can, and it's a vital mindset we can develop and reap the benefits from. And guess what? We are diving into that today in this very episode. You are listening to the Mindset Change Podcast, and I'm your mindset coach, Paul Shepard, who is on a mission to help you heal your mind and body from the inside out so you can stop struggling and start living. If you're new to the show, please subscribe to help the show grow. It really does make a difference, and more importantly, so you won't miss another episode. And welcome, Ari Wallach. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm really pleased you're here on the show. I really do subscribe to what your latest book is talking about. I've had Ben Hardy on it recently, talking about Be Your Future Self Now. And you seem to be the next level for me in regards to where we can go with a mindset that focuses on the future. So I'm going to ask you a quick question about your book is called uh, Long Path, Becoming the Ancestors, Our Future Needs. So what is the long path? So what is so it's interesting. The long path can be taken in, in two different ways, right? You can think of it as as a noun, as as a as a as a mindset, but very but very much so much more as a verb, right? It's a way of kind of seeing and being in the world. Um I had been for 20 plus years helping organizations, philanthropists, and different leaders think about the future, but through a kind of almost like through a technical set of skills. So it's like, these are the five steps that you have to do. And, you know, scenario planning, the kind of the classic way that those of us who are kind of classically trained futures go about doing it. And I realized that while that was great when we were kind of in an offsite or, you know, kind of really trying to think strategically, it wasn't a way to kind of go about your day to day, that that kind of formal way of doing it. And when I'm looking at Carolyn Dweck's work on growth mindset and just mindset in general, which is very much kind of how we see and operate in the world, it's almost like the underlying operating system for how we take in and receive information and work with it. It was very clear to me that what was needed in this moment in time in the like larger arc of Homo sapien history was a mindset that was bespoke to this moment. And we'll talk about this moment, I'm sure, in a bit. And so Long Path is a mindset for living like a great ancestor, which basically means that you go about your day acting in such a way that the decisions that you make, you should think about them having ultra long-term ramifications. And now that doesn't mean you know, the decision is like, do I, do I or do I not build another Panama Canal? Yes, those are big macro decisions that sometimes we get to make. But really, it's about seeing yourself in the world and knowing that how you interact with others, how you interact with yourself uh, matters over the long term because it sets a trim tab, which we'll get into what a trim tab is in a bit. Mm. It sets it for uh, generations to come. Part of what that does also, obviously, is when you start thinking like becoming a great ancestor, it elevates you out of this presentist moment, which is basically this way of being where you only think about the current day and that's it. No history, no future. That is very anxiety producing. And so part of what this mindset does, what the long path mindset does is it elevates you out of the moment to moment craziness that is life and gives you a much broader view of the world and your place in it. So that's a longer answer than you wanted, but long path is a mindset. It's a mindset yeah. that allows you to come and walk through the world as a great ancestor. 
I love that you mentioned anxiety side of things and it lifting you out of the craziness of the present moment. And I think a lot of my listeners will be able to relate to that as uh, I know that a lot of people come here to listen to anxiety advice. And I think the long path mindset really can help someone who's struggling with that short termism, you know, with short term rewards, um, instant gratification, which in the long term can have quite negative impact, negative impact. Um, how does someone develop that long path mindset? So the, the, and you read, obviously I won't go through the entire book word mm, yeah. for word, but in the book, I talk about kind of the three pillars of the long path mindset. And the, the three pillars are futures thinking. So that's future with an S plural. That's pillar one. Number two is transgenerational empathy. And number three is telos or ultimate aim. And so when all three of those are kind of uh, embedded in the way that you view and go about the world, what that allows you to do is no longer um, be caught up in this kind of short-termistic cycle that breeds uh, and furthers anxiety in your day-to-day. So we can, we can, well, let, let's, let's, mm. let's tease those apart. So okay. Futures sounds pretty obvious, but it really isn't. We we more often than not we go about our lives living as if though tomorrow will look like an extension of today, and what to and what that extension looks like is something that we call the official future. And don't get me wrong, we need an official future as a as a species. We need to have a some sort of consistent outlook on what tomorrow will be. Otherwise, we would go to bed at night thinking like, ah, why why will we even wake up with the electrical grid on? So we need an official future. We need that consistency. But what ends up happening is it can become almost a trap because when we think about different ways that we want to see the world manifest, either an individual or a collective or a global level, we can get very much trapped in that official future. Partly because the official future is a set of unsaid assumptions about tomorrow and how tomorrow will unfold. And and what I'm about to say is not meant to be conspiratorial, but the the way the official future comes about in any given society is usually, even though it's an unsaid set of assumptions, it's usually driven by kind of a set of practices and ways of thinking about the world in a very specific way. So the example that I often give is when we think about um the official future, we have to step back and think about, okay, in whose interest is it to propagate a certain version of what tomorrow will be? And so in the 1930s at the World's Fair in New York, and again in 1964, General Motors sponsored uh, a a huge exhibit, which was the the one, the the most well-attended exhibit was called Futurama. And it was kind of this, you would sit on this, the first one was a set of videos. In the 60s, you actually sat almost like in a roller coaster. And what it did was it showed you different visions of tomorrow. It was called Futurama. And everywhere you went, it was like the future of the, it was the kitchen of the future, the workplace of the future. But in every one of those settings that you kind of flew through, there was always <clears throat> there was always a four or eight lane highway, right? Kind of like in mm. the background. So the official future always contained cars and highways. Of course, the exhibit was sponsored by General Motors, <laughs> right? Um, and so that's what I mean that in, in an official future, there's always something guiding. The official future that we have right now is very much driven by a kind of Silicon Valley techno-utopian ethos and mindset. And again, I'm not a Luddite. But we have to step back and say, okay, when we think about the official future of tomorrow, it's if you ask, you know, 99 of 100 people, if you stop on the street and say, tell me about the next 30 or 40 years, mostly what they're going to talk about is technology. I'm not saying technology doesn't define tomorrow, but it's not the only thing that defines tomorrow. So the reason I have futures as opposed to future is it's meant to open the aperture of what is possible. There are different things that are happening right now, what we call megatrends at Longpath Labs, where I work, that are these kind of 21 different kind of tectonic forces that are shaping tomorrow. Only about 20% of them are in technology. Other ones are in kind of spirituality and psychology and, and resources. And so what futures thinking does is it opens you up to there being different tomorrows that are separate from the one that is just happening right now. It's not advocating for any specific one, but it's basically the the pillar built around agency. It's basically the one that says the future is not a noun that we're kind of running towards or they're going to wash over us, but the future is very much a verb and it's something that we make. Mm. So that's the first pillar of the mindset, futures thinking. 
The second one is transgenerational empathy. This is this is the big one. We all we we know what you know. Transgenerational is not intergenerational. It's not between the generations. It's about what goes between the generations. Transgenerational empathy, as opposed to transgenerational thinking, is asking us to put ourselves not just in the kind of shoes of the generations that came that are going to come, who, you know, our descendants, but also the ones that came before us. So, so why is transgenerational empathy so important? Because at the core of it is asking folks to not only have empathy for those who came before us, it doesn't mean you let them off the hook, but you recognize they were doing the best they could with what they had, and at the same time having empathy for those who are to come. And we'll talk about in a second under Telos why it's so important to have an emotional connection to future generations. Hmm. But then primarily transgenerational empathy is asking you to have empathy for yourself in the current moment. And what we have found in the research that we've done and the others have done at Northeastern and Stanford and UCLA and other places that we work with is that so much of the anxiety of today is because people are caught up in this hamster wheel of the moment where they're kind of only thinking about what we call lifespan bias, their own life, right? From their own birth to their own death. Transgenerational empathy rises you up to have an emotional connection that goes beyond your own lifespan from before to after. Why is that important? Why does that decrease anxiety? Because you realize it's not just about you anymore. We have an entire shelves and shelves at bookstores are what we call you know, prescriptive nonfiction, are self-help. They're almost always about the individual reading the book. They're not about a larger collective. We are not meant to think of ourselves as individuals uh, in an individual, yes, an individual. We want to individuate, but not as individuals moving around as delocated agents and actors in society. So, transgenerational empathy connects you to something bigger than yourself across time. The third pillar is telos, which is you know Greek for ultimate aim and goal. The reason telos is so unbelievably important is it's not when, when, when I say that in the book. I'm not saying you need to have within your kind of long pathian mindset an ultimate aim or goal for yourself. Yes, that's important, but I'm asking the reader and the person who's kind of practicing long path to go beyond just thinking about an ultimate aim or goal or to what end for their own life, but to something bigger, to be part of a larger Mm. project. Um, I call that the project in the book. I try not to be overly prescriptive on what I think that is, but for, for me, it's about human flourishing for generations to come. Now, we can talk about what flourishing means. We can t- and, and obviously, human flourishing on an ecologically thriving planet Earth, because there's ways that humans could probably flourish on a dead planet. Um, and that might be some people's like billionaire escape fantasies, but that's not what we're talking about. Hmm. And so all three of these put together are how you kind of practice the mindset. It sounds very complicated and overly intellectual. There's a reason the book is relatively short. You're meant to kind of go through it and, and you, you know, you've read it. After you've read it, kind of to step back and say, okay, it's no longer just about me. It's no longer about a locked in tomorrow. And it's not just about my own life goals. I'm a part of something bigger. Doing all of, practicing all three of those in a kind of co-mingled, co-arising way, you can almost think about it like a, like a triple helix, is what the mindset is and allows you to move beyond this kind of short-term, you know, the, the, the sub line of the book is an antidote for short-termism, because I really do see short-termism uh, not only just in our lives day to day, but exponentially increasing in this moment, this moment that I call the intertidal. And so it's really meant to decrease the anxiety that comes from a short-termistic stance, from a kind of cortisol, adrenaline way of going through your day to day, which is, which manifests as anxiety. Just so much to unpack from all of that, which I could, I could, you know, my brain's going, which way do I go? Um, I, I read your book and I, you know, totally, what I totally got from it was uh, looking at all three of those uh, from the, the, the futures, transgenerational thinking and uh, from the telos is that that's what I think saved my life in lots of ways, but I didn't know I was doing that at the time. It was, I began to think about, um, different areas of my future not just one fixed area um you mentioned i mm-hmm. had to just a thought mm-hmm. of that you mentioned you mentioned quite interestingly that you um don't just focus on technology you focus on spirituality um that that was something that um I, that that surprised me how, how is how is that something that 
is something that your lab is tell, 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 focusing tell me, on. Well, I'll answer it, but what, what yeah. I love about the 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 back and forth. So tell me why it's tell yeah. me why it surprised you. It surprised me because um, the impression I got wrongly was that I, I guess you would be focusing something on something more. I don't know, like the politics, the the climate, maybe something more tangible. Um, so I, I was interested to find out. I know that um, you know faith is, a, is is still a is a big thing on our planet for lots of reasons. When I my brain when you were talking about that was how are what how are you focusing on that in in different futures? That was surprising. Yeah. So I mean, look, the it's I so. Obviously or not, I'm Jewish. Um, but I come, so I come, the way I view spirituality and religion and not kind of like the dog, you know, the the synagogue I go to, the, the rabbi says something very interesting to people who are there for the first time, who haven't, who haven't stepped in a house of worship for a long time. And he'll say, look, to be clear, I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in either. Right. That's what he, he always says that like that, that kind of old school, you know, dude with a beard. I don't believe in that. Uh, but I connect to something, this idea that there are things unknown and there are bigger kind of higher levels of energy or vibration or what we call spirituality or, you know, some people call quantum mechanics or, or quantum thinking. Something like that is there. And we're going to kind of, and we're not going to figure it out, but we're going to recognize that it's there and work with it, not in a new agey way, but in a way that as scientists, we can be humble enough to say, we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers. Think about how far we've gone in the past hundred years. So, okay. so let, let, let's start there and then come down, which is when we think about a larger kind of telos for Homo sapiens, be it on planet Earth or beyond over the next several thousand years, there is a part of us that I think intrinsically, some people call it the God gene, but there's a part of us that connects to something more than just the kind of cognitive or rational or logos. And some people, by the way, you can get that walking in nature. But really what it is, is it's a recognition that I think there is a, I think and I feel that there is a a oneness to kind of the, re and I get this from David Bohm, who wrote The Holographic Universe. And, you know, again, all these people came up through kind of classic quantum physics, um, which was what I studied early on at UC Berkeley. Um, this 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 feeling that there's more than just this bicameral or binary disconnected way of seeing reality that, to be honest, kind of came up most recently, um, in, you know, the Renaissance, really in the Enlightenment. And so spirituality makes itself known in long path, but not in like the woo-woo God on a chair, but in a kind of recognition that there are things that go beyond our understanding and our way of kind of being in the world that connect us to the fabric of the universe that we may not understand for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Some people call, you know, I was watching Star Wars last night with my son. And so we were talking about the force and what is the force? And I said, look, the force is probably the closest approximation to what I think of as when we think of spirituality, something, something bigger that pervades through it. And as we unite, so this is what we do because we're, we're we're total geeks. We're looking up some kind of some some stuff on quantum and you know and you know nine dimensions and super string theory, and you start to see that these worlds that seem really disparate between like a house of worship and the large hadron collider in Geneva, these things are actually pretty similar. There are connections. So for me, spirituality comes up in this because it's a way of connecting us to something more than just kind of the egoic separation between my mind and the universe. That may be a, a long explanation. I'm sure it is. But I see it as something more than just this kind of technology. And when we often think of the future as monorails and jetpacks, but I really do think that there will be new spiritual wisdom traditions that will emerge both in the present and over the next several hundred, if not several thousand years, that start to kind of take into account uh, the universe and what we're learning from it in a way that goes beyond the kind of our great grandparents' religion. And so I wanted to account for that mm. in this book and not come across as kind of this, no, no, actually I don't care how I come across because I'm not, <laughs> but like as kind of this atheistic, secularized way of thinking about the future. Cause I think yeah. that does a disservice to where people really are. You know, I, I go to these meetings with other futurists. We, you know, sometimes we get together around the world and, and over drinks or something like later on, late in the evening, it always turns to religion. The conversation, oh, oh what are you practicing? Oh, I'm practicing mindfulness. Oh, I'm doing this. I'm going on this, you know, 
I'm doing a Dharma retreat, I'm doing a Krishna retreat. So this always comes up. So even among the folks that you would think are seen into a kind of a techno future, the fact of the matter is everyone has some, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of folks have some sort of spiritual practice or connection to something that goes beyond just the the here and now tangible kind of enlightenment, rational way of thinking. I wanted to make sure that that was woven in throughout the book, that acknowledgement, that understanding of how important that is to our reality. All right. You know, I, and I think I'd love you to talk about more about that within another book or something else at some point, because I think it's such a, a, a valuable realization. And, I, you know, I keep hearing about more about quantum entanglement recently. I think there was an award, uh, yep. a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, I'm not 100% sure. But again, it's it, there does seem to be a lot of evidence beginning to move the idea, towards the idea that we're, we're connected in some respect. And the long-term, long, you know, long path mindset, if that was a something that was more evolving and more maybe more tangible, gives us a real, you know, gives us an idea that we're we're all connected. We're, there's something much bigger than ourselves that we can, that we're part of. It doesn't make us feel so individual and so alone. And I think that's and so insignificant, yeah. right? Again, yeah. I'm a, I'm an I'm a, as I explained to someone the other day. I'm kind of an Einsteinian spiritualist, right? I looked at like if if, if you read that, there's Einstein wrote a lot about God and religion and around faith, and if there there was no more no more scientific I think than him in the past century at least, um, and it was a you're, you're in some ways a lot of what you're saying is what he says, right? Like he's like if we want it, and by the way. Some of this is obviously unverifiable, but if if we want to kind of move past a kind of insignificant, why do I matter in the world and see ourselves as connected and a part of something bigger that is ever evolving and manifesting, which God sounds like such religious language, but it's also actually the same language that you get in ecosystemology or in quantum in, in quantum physics, that same kind of way of thinking about laws of thermodynamics in any ways. Um, it's not a bad way to go about your day. Put it that way, right? If we think about kind of anxiety and depression and disconnection and loneliness that we're all feeling uh, in the world in many ways, especially coming out of this pandemic, recognizing that there are things bigger than, you know, it's interesting. I was, as I asked um, a friend of mine who was, who was Jewish, I, I knew more than Jewish people, but I was asking a friend, I go, why, why do you wear a yarmulke, like a skull cap? You know, isn't that it's because he wears it all the time, and that's that's not how I practice uh, my faith in, in many ways. And he goes, "Well, he said for him, it's obviously we talk about it as a sign of respect, but he said the reason he wears it is it's to remind him that at because he wears it obviously on top of his head, it's to remind him that he only goes to a certain level, right? And that the the skull cap is almost like a it's almost like a ceiling, and and basically says there's so much beyond me, but it's not all about me." And he had it was a very kind of like Buddhist interpretation of like mm -hmm. I'm you know I am one part of this but I'm not all of this and and what the what the yamaka reminds him of is there are things that go beyond him in his understanding and that's okay what he has control over is everything below the skull cap which is him and that's his geography of action where he will manifest good things and make a world but there are things beyond and that's okay and i ask him i go doesn't but don't you feel disconnected in that way wouldn't you want to not wear young wouldn't you want to be part of everything you know like the people go like on mushroom trips and like all is when he goes no, no no it's important though to recognize because if you think you are part of everything, then you feel start to feel almost out of control and almost too insignificant. So again, these, these wisdom traditions are really like technologies. They're meant to kind of help us do from move from X to Y. And so this is these are part of and embedded within long path. Not I'm not prescribing any specific religion or even spirituality, mm -hmm. but something beyond just the binary way of seeing and being disconnected in the world. Because to be honest, I think that's done us a great disservice over the past couple hundred years. It's given us science, it's given us a lot of great things, but I think it's led to a level of anxiety and disconnection from one another in society and the natural world that is now starting to do a major disservice to us. Absolutely agree with that. And, you know, it's interesting. The more I, the more I work with people and help them discover their telos, help them work out what their ultimate aim is, um, through mindset coaching, what's interesting is is that the more they seem to become aligned with a long-term future, uh, so the long path, 
the more they begin to think about more than themselves, uh, that alignment seems to, and maybe it is a spiritual thing, uh, that connection seems to bring wonderful opportunities, experiences, people into their lives, which seem like the most amazing synchronicities, um, which they sometimes think can feel quite magical at times. I know that that's what I've experienced and I, and I see that 100%. repeatedly from, from clients. So I, you know, maybe the thing about the, the, the long path is that it connects you to something much bigger than yourself that maybe at some point in the future, we'll be able to have a wonderful explanation for, but at the moment it's unverifiable, but it seems to be a common experience. Yep. Having a sense, so again, we're, you know, we talk about like in Buddhism, big raft, little raft, like having, you know, we can think about it as like kind of two telos. I talk a little, a little bit about this book, but not enough. This is like what the, the next book is about in some ways mm-hmm. is there's, how do you have your own purpose and telos and ultimate aim for your life, but in a way that is connected to a larger one, right? I mean, that's what we're talking yeah. about, right? So in service of that larger and and I can only speak for the, for, I can't speak for anyone, but I can, as I think about kind of Western traditions and the kind of the global West or the global North, we're at a point in time where we have lost a sense of purpose, a telos for society and civilization at large, uh, because so much of it has been consumed or subsumed by a kind of, you know, third or fourth wave market oriented capitalism. I'm a capitalist, but what I'm saying is like, the dream, the American dream, let's say, of like the white picket fence of a kind of materialness. You know, we all we need a certain level of material comfort, obviously, but then that doesn't plug you into anything bigger. The only thing that we have bigger right now is let's say nationalism, right? And we see that, right? We see country against country, and there's a little bit of a purpose maybe in there, um, but a kind of universal purpose. A, we are lacking, and B, we are definitely lacking a way of thinking about each generation building towards that purpose more so for the next generation, right? We're Again, we're on this kind of, you know, we talk about, I talk about short-termism on a day-to-day basis, but we're short-termistic as a, as a global civilization right now, because we're not, we're thinking about, yes, how do we kind of progress materially in, in some ways, but in terms of kind of psychologically, so we, we have the, we have the sustainable development goals that I've, that I've helped the UN on, which are super important, water, education, access to things that we really need. We are lacking, and I just heard this term the other day, so I'm not taking credit for it. We are lacking these kind of inner development goals, right? This way of thinking about how do we help people flourish internally, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, um, not just for them in their, yes, we want to be able to be in a way where people can do that as individuals in their own life, but how do we see it almost as a, as a, as a staircase so the next generation can start off at a higher level of internal development goals, right? And so if you think about, you know, both for you and, and for your listeners, think about the people that you know are kind of the most quote unquote conscious or awakened or like they, they, they've they've done the work now imagine a whole society doing that level of work what their child what what consciousness level of consciousness their children will be born into and they'll be raised right and then think about their children and their children we don't think about the work that we're meant to do as doing that i've i've been fortunate enough to do you know multiple kind of different buddhist retreats here and there with different great teachers and they see within their lineage kind of the the teacher's role is to help the next generation go higher up in a certain w- level of kind of awareness. We have not thought about that as a global civilization. What would that mean for us to do that over the next several hundred years? That's really what I advocate towards the end of the book. And it's interesting because some people have just been like totally dismissive of that. And they say, no, 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 like, you know, homo sapiens will always have this kind of animalistic nature and will never evolve. And every generation just starts at zero. And my pushback is, no, if we actually wanted to commit to this over the next several hundred years, and by the way, I'm not discounting climate change and all the very serious things that we have to deal with, but Mm -hmm. if we wanted to actually lean into kind of inner development goals over the next, let's say, several hundred years, imagine where we could be. It'd be amazing. We just, But that is not where the larger telos of society is pointed right now. Yeah, that would be incredible. I think that is... 
if you have a look at throughout our history, there are elements of wisdom and inner development which have been incredibly inspiring. You know, you you talked about Buddhism, and uh, I recently read Siddhartha. I've never read it before, and that was and I thought that was such an an incredible book. Um, all about when we focus on inner development um, and we we make it accessible. And I think the one thing I I'm aware of at the moment, and it's something that I've been focusing on, is um, I even have a TikTok channel. Is that we have a whole generation of people which may be stuck in short term, you know, in short termism, but to reach them to help them develop their self awareness, there has to be that bridge. And you know, I teach meditation, for example, but. For a lot of people, that they just look at that like it's an alien, you know, an alien concept, or Buddhism is an alien concept. It's only when things go get to rock bottom that they then maybe begin to seek out these things. And I think there has to be a way with the with the long power thinking of how can we reach a whole a whole, a whole generation of people which is a language that you can understand because they're they're a digital generation. You know, I'm um, I'm uh, yeah. assistant to Chris Lockhead the other day, and he was talking about. Um, digitals and analogs. So I'm classed as an analog. Uh, unfortunately, I think you'll be an analog, Gary. Um, and we, we're, yeah. we're native analogs, but we can't, we, we struggle to relate to people who are digitals and native digitals. Um, and they see the world in a very different way to us. And that, you can see that battle. Elon Musk at the moment is battling with um, dig, native digitals. They don't see the world the same way he does. You can see that happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that making that bridge over to them for that awareness development would be crucial for our long-term future, long-term future. It is, you know, there's a, but there's a dynamic, te- it's funny, a, a friend of mine has a book coming out this week called The Future's Analog, uh, and he's our age, <laughs> okay. so it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 so his, it's, well, because what he's saying, is, it's, it's interesting, over the past two years, at least in the, in the States, the, the increase in sales of records, albums, like those big mm. discs, right, has been exponential among millennials and Gen Z, right, designed to move away from, yes, they're still streaming on Spotify, still very digital, but looking for a much more real, tangible, like you think about the explosion and the growth of like Etsy.com, where people want real things that are handmade. Mm. At the same time, you have an explosion in the growth of Shein, right, this kind of app-based fast fashion where the clothes falls apart after three washings. So so part of the tension that's going to be happening right now is both the digital, we we want it and we can have it now in a kind of the digital native way of seeing the world connected with what does that, or, or then in conversation with what does that do psychologically to us, right? And I think you're seeing it kind of go back and forth. So I, I agree, it's right. You know, we, we think about, you want to meet people where they are. And the next, you know, younger generations are very much on TikTok, right? They're, they're not, definitely yeah. not on Facebook, definitely not on Twitter. They're <laughs> it's very much kind of a TikTok, Snapchat focused world. And it's interesting. I was, I was um, in conversation, I have to anonymize this. I was in conversation with someone who's leading research and development efforts on kind of increasing kind of consciousness and awareness and, and mindfulness. And he was telling me how all of their outreach efforts now are being done on TikTok. Like that is where, that is their main channel that they're doing it on. And I I asked him, I go, well, but is there any, are are you concerned that by reifying and amplifying a a, a channel and a medium and a mode of communication that is all about kind of short-term dopamine, 30 second hits, that you're actually amplifying the very problem that you're trying to solve? Um, and, And his response was, look, I can only do so much. We have to meet them there and then find a way to kind of offboard them into a more analog w- way of being. And so, again, I don't know what the right answer is, but it's interesting. What At what point, you know, are we countercultural in the sense that we say, no, 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 you don't want You want to live a more, you want to slow it down. You want to think and be more long path, mm. which would say, which would mean uh, not on TikTok, but at the same time, if that's where folks are, that's where you have to go. And so again, I, I have no answers. It's just, it's an ongoing dialogue that I have with a bunch of folks who are in this space about thinking about the kind of the long-term trajectory of homo sapiens over the next several thousand years. Do you, do you go 
you know, into a world where you're working with algorithms and trying to figure out how to amplify your content and game the system because, but you have to, because that's where folks are, or do you set up kind of a parallel world in a certain, whatever that means and, and try to figure out a way to bring people over to there. Um, and so this is, I think where we will find ourselves over the next decade or so is kind of struggling with what's the easy but potentially amplifying the thing that we're trying to overcome or actually going there and finding new ways of bringing people into new levels of awareness. So I'm kind of, I'm talking out loud to you mm, kind of the, 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 the conundrums I'm mm -hmm. seeing in the overall movement for consciousness and raising consciousness. Right. And then there's look at these same conversations I'm having with folks who are like, no, the, you know, the answer is psychedelics. It's all about microdosing and mushrooms and DMT, you know, ayahuasca and that, and we just need more people doing that. And then they'll become more awake. And at the same time, on the flip side, it's, well, those are, you know, Aldous Huxley, those are doors of perception. That's not, you can't live your life constantly through those. You have to find a way to live a life where you have that same awareness that comes about through those psychedelics, but without the psychedelics. So again, there's never a kind of perfect answer here. It's about kind of having a dialogue and debate and discussion about what are, do the means justify the ends and what are the means and then what are the ends? And this is what the book is trying to kind of uncover at, at a larger level. And I've been doing that in these podcasts since the book come out, like having these conversations and obviously trying to backboard how we're going to do this. But at an mm. individual level, when you read the book, you figure, you see that there's a way of kind of bringing this into your life. But again, because it's a shorter book, it's meant to be something that you read. You, there's exercise in every chapter meant to kind of spur new ways of thinking and feeling. But then you have to step back and then it start like, you know, Krishnamurti, the old Indian philosopher, or even Gandhi, you have to step back and start experimenting for, with this yourself to see how do you want to bring this into your life in a way that works, as opposed to a kind of dogmaticness where it says this is the only way. And that's the one thing I mm. think that is always failing when we're trying to kind of create mindset shifts for people are saying that it's binary, it's all or nothing. And so I've met people who are like, oh my God, I love this book. I'm just doing this, but in a way where I've tweaked it here and I've tweaked it there and that's okay. But whatever helps people kind of move forward and see themselves as part of something bigger, whatever that is, that to me is, is the best way forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to, um, you know, how do we reach you know, uh, people who are, say, the TikTok generation, are we, you know, are we amplifying it? Are we making it, you know, possibly making it worse? I think focusing on, I think one draw would be when you help a person reconnect, and even if it's just a message, I had a video go viral on TikTok the other day about, are you feeling empty? Are you uh, feeling disconnected? And so many people responded and said, yes, uh, I know that feeling. So mm -hmm. just from, just from, it was less than a minute, this video, just from having that message of, well, here's where you can go. Here's where you can begin to do something about that. And there was a, there was a spike in my listeners yep. on the show, just from someone who may have just tapped onto a meditation or something that I was talking about or an interview. Uh, maybe someone, you know, will, will tap onto this interview and think, actually, yes, I have, you know, I need to, I need to discover my telos because I'm, I'm empty. I'm not aligned with myself and I'm miserable and anxious and depressed mm -hmm. because of that. Um, what would what advice would you give to someone who's in that place and thinking I need a purpose, but that that can feel like a big ask, you know, a, a big mountain to climb. Yeah, I think the I've been asked this a few different times in different ways. Um, mm. and, I, and I got I got this asked in a book event the other night. They're like, "Well, how do I find my purpose?" Um, and you know, you're, of course, you're going to hear it from a guy who talks about you know, the anti-short-termistic is it's, it's not easy and it's not right away. But I think first, even asking yourself, how do I find it? And that even the acknowledgement mm. that there's something bigger than yourself is the first step. I know that sounds trite, but it's very true. Um, first and foremost, you know, I, I think it's important that people realize that finding your purpose and connecting to a purpose is never meant to be an individual act that you do in a cave or on the top of a mountain, but it's always being done in right relation to others in the world. And so what I can tell you right now is if you're looking for your purpose, it's not going to, I mean, you look, you can journal, you can do, you can do individual work, but purpose 
for anyone is going to, I think more often than not, and I could say 99% of the time, going to be about how you work and are with others in the world and where your abilities to help the world move forward um, in relation with others. And by the way, those others could be humans, it could be animals, it could be the natural world, but recognize that that purpose will not come about in kind of an, and I'm not knocking, let's say introverts, you don't have to go out and go on stage, but you have to be in relationship with others and for you to start uncovering what that is. And I know there's multiple books and I'm sure people listen to your, you know, multiple other people you've had on the podcast, but that I would say those would be the first two things. Recognizing that even that you're asking the question is already setting you down the path. Two, you won't be able to do it alone. And three, and this is the idea of a, of a big versus small telos is whatever it is recognize, and this is, you know, quoting from Hillel, that it may not be a purpose that it gets completed in your own lifetime. And that's okay. Maybe something very small that your purpose to do something like in your neighborhood or something kind of in the moment for this week, but you are part of something much bigger than your own life, right? And that, that's that been the big kind of head fake of Western society is this bombardment of the messaging that it's all about you and it's all about your life and you are unbelievably special and you, know, you only live once. And while well, I think that's important to recognize that you are important, but it's not just about you. You are part of a much larger chain of being and that you have to be able to see yourself kind of connected into that to find a purpose that is transcendent of just who you are. Uh, that would be the advice. I think that's great advice. I think there's a lot of pressure for people to find their purpose. Um, and there's lots of advice out there. But I think just to be a bit more flexible with it and understand it's, it can take some time. And sometimes your purpose begins to, what feels like a purpose, materialize. And then there are times you think, actually... I'm going to change direction, and we have to, and we have to be flexible with that. Well, this is this is this is the core part of transgenerational empathy: mm. is empathy for yourself, is yeah. recognizing you have to move on. You know, I talk a lot about in the book about examined desired futures as opposed to desired futures, and the examined part means stepping back and seeing what are the influences, societally, parents, religion, culture, media that are trying to define what your desired future or your purpose or your telos should be. So first and foremost, there's a little bit of kind of emotional, spiritual, intellectual um, archaeology that one has to go through in trying to kind of deconstruct uh, how they got to the point where they are before they start kind of constructing what that purpose should be. Because a lot of times we have to realize that um, societies foist a purpose onto individuals. And so the one thing I would say to add to what I said earlier, is it's really important to kind of step back and say, you know, what are the things that have led me to believe that this is what I should be doing? Becoming a, you know, my purpose should be to be a doctor or a lawyer, or these kind of external manifestations, as opposed to kind of an internal sense of, 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 of peace and of, of being in the world. I think as you do that deconstruction, what that allows you to do is become much more free and become much more an agent in kind of pursuing what that purpose will be. And the purpose doesn't have to be grandiose. You know, much like I say, it doesn't have to be like a Panama Canal purpose. Your purpose could be manifesting as an example of what does it mean to be in right relation with others on a moment by moment basis. Mm -hmm. So the people who've had some of the most profound impacts on me in my life have been people I've only spent 5, 10, 20 minutes with, but the way they carry themselves, their comfort, their way of being may not seem like, quote unquote, a purpose because they weren't connected to a much larger project, but literally just them having done the internal development work to be in a certain way allowed me to see that there are other ways of being. And that person, you know, those people have gone on, they're, they're spiritual teachers, they're teachers, they're lawyers, they're whatever they are, but their way of being is in and of itself a purpose, is a way of holding up a mirror, and in many ways, almost a reflection of what the world could be, of what we could be psychologically and spiritually. So I would want people to also recognize that your purpose doesn't have to be this huge thing. It could just be a way of manifesting, a way of being that is an example for others in the world. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be something with medals and ribbons and all this mm. stuff that we, these external trappings of grand purpose. Ah. Uh. You know, I'd, I'd really uh, resonate with what you're saying to say. I think the word, um, the phrase, you know, who you're being, 
Um, I think that's so important because, again, it's we can get caught up in being quite extrinsic with chasing out, you know, experiences and, and things outside of ourselves that we think make up our identity. But when we come back to who do we want to be, who do we admire, you know, who do we, who inspires us, and can we be, can we be more like that? You know, when we get an idea of um, how we want to carry ourselves in this world, I think that's a wonderful purpose, just that on its own. And I think learning to heal. Whatever is holding you back from your, your traumas, everything that taints the way that you see the world, that in itself can be a wonderful purpose. Because I think I've seen people do that uh, with my work and through the work of you know some amazing teachers out there. Um, they begin to, to, as they become more aligned and more clear, they begin to find out maybe more about themselves and what their purpose could be. Uh, but a lot of healing yeah, has to be done well, first is, for a lot is... of people. You you have to do. I mean, like you know, mm. you look at the like the body keeps the score. We all hold in, we all hold our yeah. individual trauma and our collective trauma. My my father uh, was a teenager when he lost most of his family in World War II, and then he fought with the Jewish underground and you know and survived the Holocaust. You don't think I have inherited physical emotional trauma from that? Yes, of course. So part of it is kind of unpacking that. Why? For two reasons. One, so I can be kind of live and be in a way that's more at peace in the world. That's one, and for myself. But two, and this is the larger telos, so that I can do my best not to pass that on to future generations slash my kids, right? And by the way, you don't have to have kids to practice long path because everyone you meet, younger or older, but especially younger, you are kind of passing a baton. So sometimes the baton that you pass is a better education system or you know a new library. Sometimes that baton is emotional, right? So if you are able to kind of do the work in such a way that when you interact with others, the baton you are passing on is a way of being in the world that is positive and shedding light towards those you interact with. That's amazing, but that takes a lot mm. of work. But that really is the first step and maybe the only step that we should think about when we think about kind of living long path, right? Before we get onto these larger grand, people always say, oh, I read your book, but you don't talk about how we're going to colonize Mars or how we're going to, I said, no, no, no. Like what? It doesn't matter if humans are on Mars a thousand years ago from now if we're all miserable, depressed people. Like that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is a species, Homo sapiens, evolving and doing the work that we have to do to make ourselves great ancestors for future gen generations. Being a great ancestor doesn't mean yes, we got to deal with climate change and poverty, inequality, and racism, anti-Semitism, all of those things. But in many ways, a lot of those are actually the symptoms and manifestations of disconnected individuals between themselves and who they are in a larger purpose. So I'm making an argument in the book that we have to do that work as well as the other work, right? I've met a number of people True. who are leaders and nonprofits and foundations who are miserable, angry people. And I don't, I'm not trying to knock them. What I'm saying is if we're not co-doing the work, both the external SDGs and the internal IDGs, then then we we're we're leaving as they say money on the table right we need that's what long path is is doing those together at the same time uh which is interesting when when i was talking to potential publishers uh for my book uh they would always ask where in the bookstore is this shelved is it current affairs is it self-help <laughs> is it politics government or business and i just said well yes Right. Because we've, <laughs> okay. we've so bifurcated, we've, we've bifurcated our kind of ways of thinking in these individual silos that aren't real uh, in many ways. They're just ways that we uh, be at academia or bookstores. But the, the intent with Longpath was to kind of connect these seemingly disparate threads into a mindset that would help folks both at the individual layer, but also at the transgenerational layer, help us kind of evolve to be in our best possible selves. I think, yeah, that's a great question. But where would you like your book to be? But I think transgender, transgenerational empathy. I think just even that, not passing the baton of you know emotional trauma from your past to other people. I think that is an incredible gift if you can if you can work on yourself and let go of anything that has been traumatizing you that you've been handed, so that you're not passing it on to other people. I think that's a gift that can keep on giving and. Um, you know, as yeah. I said, I get to work for people one-to-one -one and you can see who's been handed what 
And we don't talk about it in a blaming way. We talk about it in a, just as just an awareness way. This is what's been passed to you. What do you want to do with it? Because do you want to pass this on to anyone else? Or would you like to deal with it, you know, while we, whilst we can? And I think that is an important part of Long Path. I really, yeah, I think that's an amazing part of transgenerational empathy. Yep. I mean, that that's it. So I, I hope the folks who are listening um, can see that and hear that all is not lost, that there, you know, the book ends with this chapter called Finally Others. And I think it's, and this goes to the, the earlier question about purpose is find the others who are doing the work, however it's defined by you. And in community, you co-arise to create those futures that you want. It's not, you know, so much of the anxiety in the moment is that we feel kind of alone and we're the only ones saying, no, you're not, you know, if, if you're listening to this, there are others listening to this, right? And it's a way of finding them. And sometimes there's, there's not a secret handshake. It's just greeting someone with a smile and being open to a conversation in a way of being that's unbelievably important. And so even if you don't buy the book and all you do is kind of listen to this, um, the one thing I would ask is think about what is something that you can do today that opens up different potential futures for you as an individual or a society in general, but that might just be a seemingly small action. It could be holding mm -hmm. eye contact with someone longer. It could be asking a follow-up question when someone says, how are you? Saying, fine, how are you? Or whatever. Um, those are the things that at scale, at a collective level, start to create these better ways of being that I think we need as a species right now on the planet. Uh, absolutely agree with you. Ari, I could talk to you all day. And I really would, anyone to anyone listening, recommend the book Long Path. It really did open up my mindset to a whole new way of thinking about a you know generations and my ancestors that I just hadn't really thought about. And it really sort of helped me cement my purpose with my work. So I just want to say thank you very much for that. And thank you for what you're doing at the moment. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I have some exciting plans for 2023. If you are interested in joining me for some group coaching testers, please contact me via the show notes and I will send you details when they are ready. You can also reach out to me if you prefer one-to-one -one coaching help with any of the subjects I cover in the show. Thank you so much for spending your time and energy with me. Stay awake, stay aware, give yourself some loving and have an incredible day.